Hungry Trilobite Podcast would like to start by acknowledging SoonerCon. Get ready for the next chapter in Oklahoma's longest-running fan-run pop culture convention. SoonerCon will be returning in 2024, June 21st through 23rd. Get ready for a weekend of cosplay, fun and excitement, vendors, gaming, and more. You can go to SoonerCon.com for more information. Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig, and I'm going to be your host. Today's episode is one of the things that really gets to the heart of what Hungry Trilobite is about. We've talked about toys on the show before because toys tend to intersect a lot with hobbies that we consider geeky. A lot of us collect toys or at least have a passing interest in them as marketing materials. But I like to talk about the social implications of what we deal with as much as I possibly can. And it's not often I get to talk about how toys have shifted us socially. Chris Byrne is a guy who has been on the show before, and he has come back today to do just that. So without further ado, let's go ahead and start with Chris Byrne, the toy guy. Back again, we have Chris Byrne. How are you doing this evening? I am doing just great. Thank you. We got together last time in episode 125 when I got to just kind of throw around some ideas and ask you about the the basic structure of how toys came to be the way they are now. But another topic came up that I had to reach out to you about. Okay. Okay. Uh, So I just want to give you some background. I was talking with a friend who is a little older than I am, just a teeny tiny bit, just enough that their perspective is a little different than I'm in. And... This person said to me, because they were watching the new Transformers movies, man, it seems like Transformers would be something girls would like, and yet I never hear about girls playing with them. I never hear it being pitched as a girl thing. Why wasn't that the case? And it made sense to me growing up in the 80s, but it didn't make sense to them. Right. And my, my take was that I remember from the mid-80s, there was a very distinct separation between toys that were aimed at girls and toys that were aimed at boys. And there was, it was, that was by design and there was not any desire to separate the, to, to, to merge the two at all. Right. And I can remember steps in the nineties where that kind of, that trend reversed itself, but to, even though there probably could have sold a lot more, they just didn't want to go that route. And I was wondering if that meshed, if my personal take meshed with your reality, your researched reality. Well, I don't think it was, it wasn't that they didn't market them to girls. They were not, not marketed to girls, but at the time, certainly in the eighties, the prevailing sentiment and certainly the prevailing culture was that there were boys toys and girls toys and boys played this way and girls played this way. Because at the same time that the Transformers and Masters of the Universe were coming up, we had Strawberry Shortcake and Holly Hobby and My Little Pony and, you know, all sort of rainbows and unicorns over here and violence and superheroes over here. And on some level, that is a natural division in the way the genders play. But at the same time, there were a ton of girls later in the 80s who loved Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So, so it wasn't that they didn't market them to, to, uh, to girls. It's that nobody thought girls would like them. And that, again, coincides well with my experience is that Ninja Turtles, from my perspective, being in the target market at the time, that was like the first time we really saw girls embrace something that we were into and that the culture didn't seem to mind it so much. It was somewhat okay. And then it seemed like a, 
couple of years later, Power Rangers kind of added a little bit of inertia to that. Right, right. And by the end of the 90s, uh, girls and boys playing with the same things was more of an expectation. I think so. And I think what they realized is exactly what your friend realized, which is there's a missed opportunity here. You know, the, the Teenage Ninja Turtles had April, who was their sort of human cohort. And the Power Rangers had the Pink Ranger. Now, talk about gender and color another time. But but the Pink Ranger was a girl. So so it actually began to equal the boys and girls were were more equal. And that that really did reflect the culture at the time. Was this something that the industry communicated? Or was this something that, that was just a conversation with the consumer? I think it was probably a conversation with the consumer through research to see what people were buying, to know where the sales were going, and to, to quite frankly, try to broaden the audience. Because as we get from the 80s into the 90s, the entertainment marketplace becomes more crowded, more complicated, more, more competitive. Um, not as much as it is today, but very much more competitive. So the goal would be to the goal would be to appeal to as broad an audience as you possibly could. And I mean, I'm think countering that with something like Lego, which from the beginning always tried to take a very neutral stance toward gender, and that just kind of continued to do its own thing for the next thirty years. Right. Right. And but Lego comes along and Lego has starts in 99. They start with Lego Star Wars and they start all this licensing stuff. And Star Wars really did skew more to boys. It's not that girls didn't play with it, but it skewed more to more to boys. And then you come. I don't know. It was like I, I don't remember the exact year, but you have Lego Friends, which is a whole girls line. It's a whole pink and purple and pony line designed primarily to appeal to girls. And now the pendulum swung back the other way because it's now basically just sort of a, a Lego line that's more more town, which is going back to what Lego's very first theme says. There's certain core things that Lego always kind of has to be, the space, the town, the castle. Right. I, and I think that that's, that's a good grounding because that, that's a common fantasy for almost anybody, young or old, male or female. Exactly, exactly. Because kids play what they see around them. Not many kids are on Tatooine in real life. In real life, they are in a neighborhood and they see a postman and they've got, and maybe they think about seeing horses, but but it's really more playing what they see around them. I, I, to go back to my friend for a minute, it just struck me as, as interesting that it took me a minute to break down why this was, things were the way it were, they were at the time. And, and it, it just seemed like, because uh, we were talking about the last time you and I spoke, that there was a, a long time when toys were just one-off creations that were sold until that thing didn't sell anymore, then they made the new thing. And it took a long time for there to be a toy line. And in the same way, it's like it took way too long to get to the point where boys and girls would play with the same toys. And yet that actual transition happened in the span of 15, 20 years. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a generational shift. You go from the boomers, where it was very separated to, to uh, Gen X, where they started to blur that line. And then you have the, the millennials, where there really is, you're trying to get rid of that. You're trying to get rid of, you know, people are coming out against pink. Uh, people are saying, well, why shouldn't it be one color or another? Why do you, Target no longer has a girl's aisle and a boy's aisle when you go shopping there. They're just toy aisles. I, I mean, I remember 
at the very beginning of the 90s when this was just kind of starting to unravel i was reading about the the board game industry and they were saying that they their research had shown and i love how they always act like that's this definitive proof of anything but <laughs> research had shown that um they would put girls and boys in the commercials playing together but the boys always had to win because girl the boys wouldn't buy a game if they thought the girls would win and i'm just wondering how they came up with this theory and how it was tested I, I think that that is cultural bias and that the research was designed to confirm that bias. And it's not, you know, I think that, that that is more the adult hegemony than necessarily what the kids experience. More, you know, kids, kids don't experience that gender differentiation until they're about age five. And then any kind of characteristics attached to one gender, that's taught, you know, that's culturally taught at, in the home. So, you know, but, but you talk about commercials, like in the 60s, dad was always the doofus, right? So, so it was the kids who were empowered to win because they got to beat the parents and that was appealing. Yeah, how could it be anything else? I mean, you can't say you could come up with a serious theory by, what were you talking to a bunch of boys and girls and, and watching them play the game and you came up with this? I'm sorry, I just don't buy it. Well, having done a lot of research in my life for different things, I could, I can, I, I'm struggling to see how you would structure that research to come away with that as the definitive variable that determined <laughs> who would buy your game. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. That's, that's exactly <laughs> what I was looking for. Uh, but but when we had our back and forth uh, through email about this, you had mentioned that you saw a lot of the impact from the recent Barbie movie affecting this conversation now. Yeah, I, well, the Barbie movie, I which is brilliant, I've seen it twice, and and it's really amazing to me to see how the all the empowerment that Barbie re always represented, how that actually played out in the culture and that we still have these cultural norms for women. And I don't know if you've seen the movie or if your listeners have seen the movie, but America Ferrara does a whole monologue about what's expected of women. And it's really quite, quite wonderful. And it really is, does show the dichotomy that still exists in the culture. And... You're seeing this uh, when it comes to how we're marketing things like toys, for example. But I can I can see this expanded to all sorts of you know hobby activities like you know board games, video games, and so forth. Right, and I think that there's a people make a lot of assumptions in the toy industry. People assume that girls aren't going to going to want to play Dungeon and Dungeons and Dragons. They're not going to want to play role playing games because oh, that's just too competitive for the little darlings. That's nonsense. <laughs> yeah, that's absolute nonsense. Uh, I've known girls in my, in my life, and this is, of course, anecdotal, who are much more competitive than I am. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? I have a solid rule, and I will tell this to anybody who takes a pick up a sport. Do not play paintball against cheerleaders. Trust me. Ah! <laughs> I know from experience. <laughs> But 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 uh, to get back to I, I see that when I said video games and board games, I often wondered if that was kind of playing into this a little bit because when video games really started picking up at the tail end of the '80s, that was a case of where I don't think it was really possible to differentiate those by gender, and they became so popular it just became a, almost a pushing force to to stop the, this artificial separation. Yeah, I, I think that that definitely video games, you know, Pong and all the Mario games and all of the 
really Nintendo is, has been probably the leader at gender neutral games, if you will, because of all the characters that in, are in Mario's and Luigi's world. Uh, you get into things like Mortal Kombat and some of the more um, competitive war-based games. Those do tend to appeal more to boys, but or men really, you know. But I can't say that there are no women who don't play it. I played House of the Dead three with some very tough women. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I think especially Smash Brothers in particular is a nice little. Uh, middle ground there where you can get very very competitive and yet it still has so many characters that it becomes accessible and to be fair i guess the more recent mortal Kombat's with the giant character rosters are not that far behind right right and i think it's about the narrative and it's about really giving permission if you go back and you look at the original erector set i think it's like from 1915 or something it just says in big letters hey boys you know because god forbid a woman would ever do something as difficult as putting a nut and a screw together. <laughs> I see that a lot. I read a lot of really old comic books and there is definitely a bias on that. And then I start to wonder, what is the system here? I mean, you're, you're having an ad that's geared to selling a toy to a boy and it's in a comic book, which is the presumed audience is that it's being bought by a boy, but there's no guarantee of that. Right, right odds were probably a little bit better in the 60s and 50s, but that's still not really anything to go on. And how many assumptions were made in the, in this process here? Many, and, and many that reflect the culture, many that reflect the sort of madman roles of the Eisenhower years of the, you know, the, of the women. And, and, you know, if you, if you read, uh, but the female eunuch, right, <laughs> right, from back in the, the 60s, the whole idea that, that women adopted these roles to be subservient to men as a survival mechanism. I mean, that's going way beyond toys, but, but it is a kind of cultural uh, zeitgeist that, that people were teaching children. If you look at toy catalogs from the 20s, all of the toys targeted to girls are about mother and nurturing and home care and, and being you know, essentially a servant. And toys in the 20s were not that complex or sophisticated compared to what we think of today or even what we thought of in the 80s. Right, right. And, so that's yeah. what... So, go ahead, go ahead. No, I am. Barbie in 1959 had two choices, you know, bride or teenage fashion model, <laughs> pretty much. You know, now she's had a couple of hundred careers and, you know, she is, she is now representative of, of so much more diverse possibility. And because there is... We accept as a culture that that possibility is available to both genders now. So, I mean, if, if you're in the 20s and you're you're coming out with, you know, you're trying to design toys for girls, and this is the first thing you have out of the gate, uh, I became, was there anything else beyond that? You said, you know, geared toward motherhood, and that's about it. Right. I mean, I, some of the catalogs are things like a little ironing board, a dinner service, a tea set, you know, there are trucks and cars and things for boys, construction vehicles, you know, things like Lincoln Logs. Um, but it was it was just always presumed that girls wouldn't be interested in it because the culture was defining was defining the role for them. Rather, uh, the male dominated culture was defining their role rather than them being empowered to define their role themselves, which is really what changed in Barbie around 1985 when Jill Barad and Jan John Ammerman came up with We Girls Can Do Anything. And if I'm remembering my history correctly, that was at a as a bit of a response to the fact that the Barbie brand had taken a bit of a dip at that exact point. 
Exactly. And they were trying to ask themselves why. And to, to, this is the part that I'm, I'm looking at. It's like, this was a, the one example in this conversation where somebody said, how can we, how can we sell better to make more money instead of just pushing this narrative? They said, let's find the narrative the customer wants and play to that. Exactly. And it's a changing customer. It's a, it's a changing customer at that time had gone through all the struggles with the, with trying to pass and ratify the ERA, the, the equal rights amendment and more women in the workplace. And, you know, we were getting into, you know, the movie working girl and, and all of that stuff. So there was much more empowerment of women in the culture so that then that would inevitably trickle down to toys and girls and role models for these girls that they would express through their play. And the, uh, the idea is that, you know, there's probably 10 years prior to that, there might've been some discomfort with the, the message that these, these dolls were sending. I'm just going to pick on Barbie because that's the current topic here. Sure. And, and it took a while for that moment to build to the point. It's like, no, we have to change because there's a certain generation that doesn't want this message to be the one that gets passed on anymore. Right. They're not going to buy that product. If you're no. telling them, you know, you have to be Susie Homemaker, not to pick on a good brand from the 60s, but if you have to be, if you're going to be Susie Homemaker, well, they want more than that. And they're not going to, they're not going to pretend to be something that they're not aspiring to in their fantasy. I mean, just at almost the exact same point in time, maybe a few years prior, G.I. Joe had a very similar soul searching moment where it's like they looked at this and said, people look at a soldier figure and they see the Vietnam War. And that's exactly. something that we don't want to carry through. How can we retool this? And the end result is in some ways very similar. Right. But he became a real American hero. He was not he was not he was fighting intergalactic and extraterrestrial beings and it's still the the essence of G.I. Joe play is the essence of a lot of uh, play that appeals primarily to the male male gender um, power and conflict, power and conflict and dominance. And, and, you know, and that's just part of who we are as biological creatures. But and and women do tend to be more cooperative and nurturing. But within those within those two huge rubrics, there's a lot of room for how does that get expressed? Mm-hmm. And that, that's a really good way to put it. And that's something I was trying to mull through my head here and I was not doing a good job of it. But <laughs> it's like, you know, you can say, okay, well, uh, broadly, a boy would want to have something that involves problem solving and, and conquest and a girl would like something that involves collaboration and cooperation. But there's so many ways we can manifest that besides soldier and mother. Yes, exactly. To boil either gender back down to those two basic roles is such a disservice. Yeah, it is. It is, and it was. It it you know out clearly it worked for a while, not that long in this in the big scheme of things, but it but it worked for a while, and the toy industry especially only thrives by reflecting the culture at large, and it's the culture that the kids are coming into at that time. So on some levels, it's going to lag a little bit behind, but it's always playing catch up. Is with all the research you've done, I really think I would like to ask, is there a certain time frame that seems to click where you can see like the, the point between when the lesson is taught and when the lesson is learned in the toy industry? That is a great question. And I don't, I think it's really hard to pinpoint an exact time, but I definitely think from the mid eighties, because, you know, you began the eighties, the, the as we were saying with Care Bears and Strawberry Shortcake and 
um, Holly Hobby and, and all of those things, you know, Amer the American greeting stuff with G.I. Joe in its second iteration, Masters of the Universe, uh, the beginning of Star Wars, all of that. And suddenly you've got fans of both from both genders. Boys like Care Bears, what? Shocking. You know, girls like Star Wars, shocking. <laughs> you know, and suddenly they realize that, that the audience, suddenly that the toy industry people or the entertainment people who were mired in 10 years earlier suddenly woke up and said, hey, wait a minute, it's a, it's a different consumer out there. We need to direct stuff to them. And I, I mean, I look at this like for, I had Star Wars stuff and Care Bear stuff as a kid. I mean, that I totally get where you're coming right. from here. I am exactly who you're <laughs> talking about here. But I, I, I'm looking at this and I'm trying to think to like the the late you know late '90s, early 2000s when I was not the not buying toys for you know to play with anymore. I would occasionally get them for collectibles. Right. But I would see these cases where people would be talking about how uh, they. They were worried about the increase in screen time the kids were getting at that point in time. And, you know, there was talks about how some toys might be uh, too sexual for the girls, too violent for the boys. And I'm just thinking it seems like in the mid 2000s, like 2006, 7, 8, that started to, that there started to be more toys that were geared toward cooperation and rescue and really gearing down that the complaints that they had in the mid 90s. It seemed like a six to seven year span seemed to be what was needed for the, the lessons to be learned. Right, which, which makes sense because we, we sort of figure a generation of kids is eight years, right? So like every eight years, there's a new generation of kids uh, because they're, they're, they're usually out of toys by eight. But to your point about, about sexualizing and all of that stuff, a lot of that was adults who didn't understand children. You know, they, you know the Bratz dolls, perfect example. Adults would look at that and say, oh, my gosh, she's a very she's a woman of questionable reputation. Uh, and little girls would look at it and go pretty. <laughs> you know? So the people project their own consciousness and their own sensibilities onto that inert lump of plastic. <laughs> I was actually thinking exactly of the Bratz doll, but I was trying not to pick on another doll. I'll, I'll go. For that. I'll go there. <laughs> you know? I yeah. mean, I remember it, it, when I was a kid and Jem was the big thing. Oh, and yeah. Our teachers warning us that maybe we shouldn't be idolizing Jem. And I'm like, it's a cartoon. I don't idolize it. I watch it because it's fun. Right, right. And I almost wanted, felt like I was trying to explain this to my teacher. It's like, this is, you're <laughs> not understanding what's involved here. We're just wanting to have a good time. That's it. Right, right. And and children perceive things. I just got to do a thing and I they said, what is the one thing you want people in the entertainment and toy industry to do? And I said, respect children, understand how they develop and what they perceive at a, at a certain age. Because I'll give you an example. If you told, sat down and told a five-year-old literally how reproduction happened, they would laugh at you because they have not got the brain development to even conceive of that. So it would be like, they, they wouldn't even get it. And it's like, if you've watched, if you've watched um, movies or TVs with a, with a little child, you can see the stuff that goes right over their head because they're just not ready for it. So. And that's, it's part of the life experience. Even if you never watch movies or TV, just so much of what happens in life just goes over their head. They, they soak up what, they're ready for exactly <laughs> i'll give you an example my niece when she was i think eight got obsessed with listening to les miserables and so there was a there was a and i hadn't seen it in years and there was a revival on broadway so i said okay 
I'll take you to see it. And we're sitting there and all of a sudden I'm going, okay, prostitution, da, 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 you know, all of this stuff, you know, and, and my niece just thought, oh, that poor little girl, that's what she got. <laughs> and, and that's, it's, that's just the, the, the basis of being a child that you just, you grab what you can and you right. make sense of it. And sometimes that's how you start to get new concepts in. You see, see something you don't understand. You start to play with it a bit. Eventually, you might have to ask an adult for some clarification. You might read a book. And, and it's like there's this assumption that by some people that kids are going to get an idea that they're not ready for. And they're just going to wholeheartedly embrace it because the toy said so. The book said so. The TV show said so. Forgetting the fact that kids constantly reevaluate what they're learning all the time. Right. And, and the, the, one of the things in kids entertainment, you're not allowed to do a replicatable act in a TV show. And my brothers and I grew up watching, watching Roadrunner, right? Mm -hmm. And I laugh because, yeah, we really tried to drop an anvil on each other. You know? And the thing about dropping an anvil is it's funny to kids because they're just beginning to understand things like gravity and weight. So the idea that you could make an anvil fly they 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 get that is playing with reality and therefore it's funny. It's not like they're going to go out to the shop and try to drop the anvil on their brother. Right. And how many times has that actually happened? I think none. Okay. <laughs> I, I mean, there, there's just the famous case. Of, I don't know if it's still out there, but there was a run of Superman costumes where they actually had a disclaimer that says, Cape does not allow you to fly. Right. Because unfortunately, I think one kid actually did try it. Tragically, it's horrible, but I don't think it was ever the sign of a trend. No, no. And, and the other, if you see one of those warnings on a toy like that, you can bet somebody tried it. <laughs> and you have scratch your head and go, what? Why did they do that? Or, or I just picked up a, a G.I. Joe thing not too long ago, and it said, guns do not actually shoot. And I kind of remember that from when I was a kid, too. Right. And... There were sometimes G.I. Joe weapons that would shoot. So that was worth pointing right. out. But then I think even if it did, what kind of damage could it do? Right, right. For, for $9.99 with, with the doll. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you, you can't build that for that. No, I mean, even this, the bullet would be so tiny, it would be like the size of a hair. Right. Why are we worried about this? Right. So, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's one of those things that it seems that so many people really don't give kids enough credit and they don't give adults enough credit for being able to, you know, raise these kids. And they, and they don't give enough credit to kids to, if they don't understand something, they'll come back. I, I, I talked about Roadrunner, about Bugs Bunny, right? We watched Bugs Bunny when, when I was a kid, it was on all the time. Now I see some of them as an adult and I go, oh my gosh, that's where I first heard, heard Wagner. That's where I first heard this, you know, you know, my sword and magic hell, that my sword is, you know, that, that was what's opera doc, you know? And so, so as you become an adult, then you appreciate it and you remember the pleasure you got out of it as a kid. So there's that, that double sided experience, if you will, of, uh, as an adult of being a kid and now appreciating it as an adult. And now we're getting into a whole other area where it's like, you got to realize that Many of those cartoons, particularly Warner Brothers cartoons, were not aimed at kids originally. Right. They were right. 
they were previews to movies that were coming out and I did that that was for an adult going out for a nice evening on the town that was what they showed before the movie so they were deliberately gearing them toward adults right flintstones and the jetsons too back in the back in the 60s those were those were big those were uh, you know those the honeymooners or whatever as as a cartoon in in the stone age <laughs> people will look at this and they'll say well they what about the kids? Like it wasn't meant for kids. Kids found it, they liked it, and they gleamed onto it. And then somebody said, "Well, we can sell these as cheap TV programs in the fifties right. and sixties. But it's like Star Wars wasn't designed for kids. Right, it was designed for adults. Kids liked it, and that's again, we're just presuming that kids aren't going. The kids need something made specifically for them. When kids are going to watch something that they recognize the quality. Right, and, and I, I always say, I mean, I won't, I won't name any of the shows, but. But I would watch these shows and I go, well, that's boring because the kid is, there's nothing, there's, there's no conflict. When they, when they brought back Strawberry Shortcake, they took out the purple pie man because pie man or whatever, because they thought kids would be scared by it. But kids need that vicarious scaring. They need, they need to see the Wizard of Oz. They need to see the flying monkeys and be scared by it because they have that vicarious experience. So they've already had an experience of being scared and being okay that when you come to that in real life, that's, that's the point. That, that was the whole point behind Grimm's fairy tales, grim as they were. We need to give the story some teeth. Yeah. We need to let the kids think that there is something at stake. And uh, like I said, in the mid 2000s, I saw a lot of toy lines and TV shows that really tried to remove the need for a villain. They right. really just, yeah, they were based on, we are rescuing, we're building. And then that there's a place for that. I should definitely, but it was like the idea of having somebody wanting to, something bad to happen was verboten for a couple of years. Right, right. And, and you know, you go back to, to 1938 with Thomas the Train, he was quite moralistic. The original Thomas the Train was really modeling this proper British morality for children as a train. And we look at what actually works up, works and Villains work. The villains are often the best-selling oh, yeah. figures out of the whole line. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, who do you buy from from Doctor Seuss? You buy the Grinch, right? <laughs> because, and even though he's redeemed, uh, you know, there there is that sort of, which is another storyline. The the villain who is redeemed is another great storyline. But kids kids love the the villain, but they also love they also love it when the villain gets his comeuppance. They love the we all like that moralistic closure on something. I, I mean, I know a lot of my friends when we would put together something from like Transformers, there was always that neat little idea about what if we have this character change sides? How right. does that change everything? And that the storytelling aspects of most toys are a very underrated property mm -hmm. of them. Is that what we're teaching kids how to play with storytelling, drama, personality, sense of self? Right. And, and really it is, it is the, it's the narrative that, it, that creates the play. It's not the piece of plastic. It's how the child animates, animates it with their imagination that makes it. And where does that narrative come from? And, and there was a lot of fear in the eighties with Peggy Charon and actions for children's television, that kids would just be parroting the storylines they saw on TV. Not really the case. Most kids will take those toys and use them almost in a, in a kind of Jungian way to act out the trauma 
you know, childhood trauma in quotes uh, that, they, that they've experienced and resolve things in their minds. It's a very important part of development and mental health. And I really have to wonder how long that fear would last when if you just give a kid a batch of toys for an afternoon, especially a, a couple of kids, and just let them go out to go to town. Right. You will never have that fear because they 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 start maybe from the, the plot from the TV show or whatever, and then they go completely off into left field. Right, exactly. And they, they will integrate the characteristics of a of the properties of a character, say a superhero or something like that. They'll say, oh, well, soup, you know, Spider-Man can't do this. He can't fly without the web, right, kind of thing. And so there are certain rules in the world, just like in Harry Potter, there's rules of the world of Hogwarts and Harry Potter. And kids will, will honor those rules in their imaginations, but they'll certainly play their own original stories. And, you know, if you give, say, I'm just picking an example here. You give a kid a batch of Star Wars figures and you drop in a Ninja Turtle. They're not going to let that Ninja Turtle sit there. They're going to find a place for right. that, even though it doesn't fit the internal logic of the world. It's something they can do something with. And they they have, they have they feel the urge to try it. Right. And and it is. It's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like um, when the people from one day at a time dropped in on Empty Nest back in the 90s. <laughs> it's, it's, that, it's that kind of thing because... It's two narratives that come together, and suddenly the, you're on a whole new creative and imaginative train. And again, it, we go back to it's always about creativity and imagination, which is what you're trying to get in the child in the first place. Right, right, and and the joy of create of creativity and imagination because it's not just it's not just idle fantasy. You know, if like like Dickens' Hard Times, one of my favorite novels, it's all about you know, facts. We want facts. We don't want fancy. We don't want imagination. We want just facts. And of course, the people who who ultimately have facts because it's Dickens do not do as well as the people who are able to imagine things. But the idea is imagination is problem solving. How do we come up with problem solving? How do we have solutions to relationships? Asking that question, what if, which is really the, the essence of play. So what if the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles arrive in the Star Wars world? What if that? And then you're off and playing and honestly it doesn't seem like it would be that far-fetched because as, as many weird things are in star wars what's one more what's right. four more right right exactly so chris i want to thank you for giving me that insight there because frankly it was something that was bugging me for a <laughs> bit and it was a lot of fun to hash that out that's fun i love it so is there something else that you might want to throw in there just as your current take on where this conversation is going well, I, I do. I have I have this after seeing the Barbie movie now twice, I have all of these thoughts about Ken. <laughs> I'm listening. You have, have you my seen attention? Ken? Have you seen have you seen the movie? I actually confess I have not. I've wanted to see it, but it has been that kind of summer. Okay, well, there's gonna be some spoiler alerts in here, but I, I live with it. Uh, but you know, ultimately Ken has to decide who he is as an independent person. But the reason that Ken has gotten short shrift is that when Barbie came out in 1959 and in 61, when Ken showed up on the scene, girls would play with Barbie until they were 10 or 11, right? And when you're 10 or 11, you're seeing your older sisters, your cousins, they're starting to date. So the idea of dating is sort of in the back of your mind. So the game mystery date at the time and all of that. So, but now that Barbie is four five, six years old, that doesn't, you know, dating doesn't even come into their, into their mind. So Ken really is, what is Ken's purpose, you know, in the for the play of a four to six year old versus a ten to eleven year old? And I, I think the the other thing I thought about it is, you watch that movie and you think, 
you know, girls had all of these opportunities to create and play. And we have so limited boys in our culture as to what they can do. We really do need to let Ken go discover who he is. That's really profound. I like that a lot. And I think I, in general, I, we could have a whole conversation about <laughs> just how we're limiting everybody. I mean, I, I to, to say one group is more limited than another, I don't even, I, I'm not prepared to talk about that. Right. But it's like, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about just how much have we just told people, you have to do this or that, and you don't have a third option. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, it's, I think that we're celebrating that now is as we're able to say, this let, let, let's give people the chance to build their own life and, and find their, their own path here right and encourage kids to be who they are and encourage kids to experiment with who they are you know just because because your your son wants to play with barbie on a thursday afternoon that's not a bellwether of horrors to come for you or whatever you know it's just like it's exploring let's give children the freedom to explore whatever is in front of them at any given time and see where it takes them. And don't forget that no matter what you're doing, you're just exposing them to something new. You're giving them something new to play around. And they're ultimately, they're playing with their own minds more than anything else. Right. The right. toy is just a vehicle. Exactly. And, and from, a, from an educational theory standpoint, that, that's constructivism in, the, in the, the essence of constructivism. You know, Piaget and Montessori and some of those, those people who really, that, that when you're confronted with new information, you either assimilate it into what you know or change what you know to accommodate the new information. So it's all about growing and becoming a broader human being. And it's just, you know, and giving kids those opportunities is just phenomenal. Uh, there's a certain very cynical breed of parent that would say, well, you don't need to give ki kids toys. You give them, you know, some cardboard boxes and a comb and they'll make it up. I'm like, you don't need running shoes to run, but it freaking helps. Okay. <laughs> right. Exactly. 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 And it's, it's what is, you know, what is the, the toy is it, if the toy is a catalyst or especially the narrative is a catalyst more and more with whether it's DC or Marvel or Paw Patrol or anything, those characters are a catalyst that we then want to play. I mean, if you read, you go back and read novels in the, in the, uh, of the 18th century and they're playing King Arthur and they're playing these people from history. At the turn of the century, Noah's arcs were one of the biggest toys out there. So kids are like trying to assimilate that, you know, the story and Bible stories and, and at that, because that's the story. Story is elemental to who we are as creatures. So how we experience and express that story is critical. And for the longest time, I mean, people will, will go back to the Bible, for example, or um, to a lesser extent, Greek mythology and, and or, or things like uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes or Zorro or, or the, the right. classic stories we go to. And they, they wonder, they think that, that that's just the, the benchmark for, and it's like, no, that's just what people that that was the stories that were accessible at the time it doesn't make right. them the best it doesn't make them the worst it's just what they had access to and they dug it right they dug it they dug it i mean i'm my when my brothers and i came home from church school we were we were intent on smiting <laughs> because we That's got a funny. lot of smiting <laughs> that is funny but who doesn't want to do smiting <laughs> who, who wants a good smiting now and then come on Right, I know, exactly. I got but a couple was, names. <laughs> right, exactly. But it was just, you know, because again, here are these people you know, who, are, who are fighting and doing all this stuff and one's more powerful than the other and you've got this 
all this the sibling thing going on and it, it's just that story was the catalyst for a normal human expression mm -hmm. and for most of the past several hundred years most people in uh well in europe one of the americas would have access to scripture that became right. the, the body of work they had and whether they were true believers or completely not that was just something they, they could call a common point of reference exactly right and and that's and you bring up a really good point because what happens is you have communities that are formed around star wars we're star wars fans we're marvel fans we are we you sit down two kids together who don't know each other but they both play power rangers suddenly they've got a, a means of connecting and and then you enhance the social experience of play i i just saw a meme very before i logged on here about two kids playing and and the, the comment is like well i like him he's my best friend he doesn't speak english so we just get right to the karate <laughs> which is i can totally remember that like well if we can just play it doesn't really matter right right exactly and and that's a that's a connection and, and it is i mean there's you know, I always say that play does three things. It gives kids new experiences. It gives them a chance to explore their world. And most importantly, it gives them a chance to express themselves. So, so those, th those three elements, really, there is a good, there's a good toy in there. Uh, Chris, speaking of exploring the world, if you and I are ever in the same city, we got to get lunch or something there, hash out some of these ideas in person. But in the meantime, I want to link everything that you have on the website, on my website, aaronbosick.com. Um, I'll put in everything from last time. Is there anything else you want to throw on there for this episode? No, just come on over and see us and see both of us. And then we'll, then we'll figure out how we can get together. Let's do that. Okay. I would like to thank Chris for being my guest today. And I would like to thank you for listening. This is one of the great opportunities I have hosting this show is that I might have an idea or a question and sometimes it's really easy for me to reach into my phone and find a good contact and invite them onto the show to discuss this like we did today. If you have a topic that is itching at you that you would like to hear a qualified conversation on, give me a shout out. Reach out to me at bossingpodcast at yahoo.com or follow me on Instagram or Twitter or Blue Sky at Aaron Bossing. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.